There is a special thing that is peculiar to transplantation, and that is without an adequate supply of donors, you have no transplantation. And in our limited programme, which is small in number, we've just passed our 100 uh, over the last eight years, um, this has been a recurrent theme. Those of us who are lucky enough to be healthy and never have to think about our own hearts should consider the problems, the dilemmas, the anxieties, the stresses of those on the waiting list for all forms of major surgery, particularly heart surgery, and particularly individuals who uh, are awaiting heart transplantation. That was Mr Morris Nelligan, consultant cardiac surgeon, and Dr Brian Morer, consultant cardiologist at St Vincent's Hospital and James's Hospital, both stressing the vital importance of the donor. And the recipients of new hearts are forever grateful to their magnanimous, anonymous donors. I'm in my tenth year now. I always think of my donor and I am so grateful for the second chance of life that it's unbelievable what these people do and medical staff the whole lot it's just a complete miracle to me to be alive and well today after almost 10 years after being given four months to live in 1985 words wouldn't actually express my grateful thanks to the donor the donor family for even considering to donate a heart which has given me a new life. Every morning, the minute I open my eyes, you think of your donor, you pray for your donor, you thank your donor. And during the day, you might think of your donor five, ten times, but you always say a little prayer for the donor. And last thing at night, you've gone through another day with your new heart and you thank the donor once again say a little prayer and say, well, thank you, I've seen another day with your heart and it's been a wonderful day. In a way, it was a miracle that was made possible by my donor. Now, people have lots of ways of remembering their donors. In my case, I have made an arrangement that every week since I had my heart, which is now gone for three years, I've had a mass set for the donor. So... um, I don't know him personally, but I do know him really because he really is um, a very close friend of mine. I am very grateful to my donor, which may sound very funny. The person has to die naturally before I can or anybody else can get a heart. But I pray for my donor every single day of my life. I have no desire to know who, who the person was, but if the family, at this late stage, I doubt it very much, but if such an occasion did arise as the family of of my donor ever wanted to see me, I would be willing, very willing to meet them because, as I said, I am very grateful to them also because without their cooperation, uh, it couldn't have have happened. As regards my attitude towards my donor, there's never a day but I thank God for my donor, for all donors and their families. And I pray regularly 
I pray regularly. Anytime, anytime I'm at Mass and the priest asks us to pray for our own intentions, the very first reaction I have every single time at Mass is my donor, all donors, their families, that the good Lord will have mercy on the donors and will console the families in their hour of need, in their hour of, of strife, in their hour of grief. For myself, I thank my donor every day of my new life, feel some kind of custodial responsibility to the new heart, feel I must treat it with more care and respect than I did the old one. For this is someone's gift to me, my heart of grace. In ancient Greece, when the gods of fates looked with benevolence on people who were ill or had insurmountable problems and gave them the courage to go on, they were said to have been given the heart of grace. I can think of no more fitting phrase to describe the feelings of the grateful recipients of donor hearts, all of whom, like myself, feel that they have been saved from certain death, given a new life, undergone a miraculous sea change. I never actually believed there was anything wrong with my heart. I thought everybody was wrong and I was right and they were fooling me. And all of a sudden they said, right, we're going to send you to visit Mr Nelligan and see what the outcome is. I went to Mr Nelligan and he informed me, yes, we're going to remove this heart of yours and we're going to put in a new one. Shock, horror couldn't believe there was actually something seriously wrong with my heart and I think it's then that I realised yep, life is precious let's get this new heart By coincidence, it was the month of August that he brought me back in and while I was in under his care a programme came out on RTE about uh, the heart transplant games of the previous June in Amsterdam and whatever possessed me to live in hope, I said to myself, if I were lucky enough to get my heart transplant in time, I could be on the next team, going to the, going to the next games. And by an extraordinary set of courts, coincidences, I happened to make that next team, thanks be to God, and all, all, the, good, all the good people around not forgetting my good donor. So now, thank God, I am very well and I've had no setbacks since. And um, that was all due to my donor. And I've, I've, I think it's, it's very important for people to realise there are so many people waiting on hearts and that literally they just have to wait there until... It, it's a terrible thing to say, but somebody naturally has to die. But that's not for me to say what anybody should do, but it is a marvellous thing for, for the person who's waiting. Well, in January 1985, I had bypasses, and unfortunately, the uh, heart was too badly damaged, and I needed a, a donor rather urgently, and... 
thanks be to God, I did receive a donor's uh, heart. I'm ever so grateful to these wonderful people who donated the heart. And I would love to see more people uh, carry the donor card because only for the like of those people, I would not be alive today and several of my compatriots wouldn't be alive today. I took up an active game of golf again, which I had missed for well over a year. And I went from 12 handicap back down to six. And unfortunately, I got a little bit lazy and it's gone up to 14, but my complete intentions now are to get back down to single figures again. I living a relatively normal life. I feel well. I can never thank my donor's family enough. My donor to me really means everything because um, I was I was really finished. I mean, I was staring into the grave at the time. I had no. I had shown my wife how to where to pay the bills. I always paid the bills. Just that that's just the way it happened in our house. And uh, I had actually begun to close down and show her, you know, how to get on after I was gone. And I, my son plays a lot of football and that. And I remember saying to her after Mr. Woods gave me the news that um, I'd never see how well he did or did he do any good and three years on I was watching him playing in Lansdowne Road against the Australians uh, for the Irish rugby team, schoolboys rugby team so in a way it was a miracle that was made possible by my donor And my own feeling only four months after receiving my new heart is and will always be one of perpetual celebration for I too had reached the nadir Breathing was difficult, broadcasting and lecturing impossible, my walking reduced to a shuffle. And now it is as if my clock has been put back twenty years. I am alive again, working again, living again, celebrating again, and all because of the thoughtfulness and magnanimity and charity of a donor whose identity I shall never know. Well, Bill, it's uh, very nice to see you again, and particularly to see you looking so well uh, such a short period after your transplant. I'm delighted to uh, hear that you uh, feel so well and that you feel up to undertaking all this work. Um, I'm particularly obliged to you for giving me this opportunity on St Valentine's Day to draw attention to the uh, problems of which uh, we have in relation not only to heart transplantation but to people who have to wait for all forms of, of cardiac surgery. Uh, heart transplantation is obviously the most acute and the most emotional problem and we don't uh, put people on the list for heart transplantation unless we feel that we are unable to treat them in any other way and quite frankly that they are unlikely to survive for a uh, reasonable period. Everybody who goes on the transplant waiting list knows this. And of course the emotional trauma and the, the anxiety which is generated by this 
uh, is something which we strive to overcome, but which we cannot, uh, unfortunately, always deal with totally. Now, I'm well aware that you uh, went through this whole experience yourself, and you're in a much better position to describe it from a personal point of view than I am. But uh, I do feel that, to a lesser degree, we shouldn't forget the problems which are posed by the 1,600 patients who are waiting for ordinary cardiac surgery, and some of whom have to wait for up to one to two years. Unfortunately, the provision of the facilities necessary to allow all these people to be operated on within a reasonable period of time is extraordinarily expensive. And uh, as everyone in the country is aware, the cost of medical technology, the cost of just buying the equipment and hiring the staff to do these very effective procedures is very high. And government, with all the priorities which it has to take into consideration, has over the years done its best to fund whatever is necessary. But, of course, it hasn't been able to do so in a way which meets all our needs. That was Dr. Brian Morer. Now, Mr. Morris Nelligan. One of the points that has been raised uh, with funding and the development of a third operating theatre, uh, enabling us to do more work... Um, is that we'll simply get to people uh, more quickly. And A, that we'll, uh, to some degree, minimise the risk of uh, another infarct, or even, sadly, in some cases, of death. Um, And also that we'll, we'll, uh, in some way, avoid a number of patients passing from one category into another. Say, somebody who could be saved with a simple bypass or could be palliated with a simple bypass may, after a couple of coronaries, if they survive them, uh, become a candidate for transplantation. And uh, this is a real problem. And our transplant patients come from... 50% of them are those who have um, ischemic heart disease or coronary artery disease. And this may be because their heart has been... Uh, damaged severely by repeated heart attacks are that they've had bypasses which have run out of time or have failed um, and they comprise 50% of the patients coming in. Um, sadly to say, on occasions we have had donations which we couldn't use um, because our facilities at the time for one reason or another were inadequate or were full. Um, and it's difficult how to reconcile and how to address these problems. Clearly All organ donation is welcome. There are peculiarities in the various kinds of organ donation and the selection necessary for hearts is probably a bit more rigorous than would be for kidneys or liver donation. But every donor uh, can be used to help somebody else uh, and some of them, uh, by multiple donation, can help very many people. A kidney donation, a liver donation, a lung donation, a heart donation... Uh, Our problem is that really we don't um, want, uh, or at least we we see a certain problem with taking uh, donated hearts from men over the age of 45 years. And that's been even pushed up from 40, and women over 50. Because you run the very real risk then, and we have seen it here, that the donated heart may itself have coronary disease. So we, we have the age constraint... We're not as yet doing paediatric heart transplantation in the country, which is something that both Freddie Wood and I would uh, like to do and see as a natural uh, progression of what we're doing. At present, the children go to England, and we, see, we 
uh, really see no necessity for this at all because the expertise and the facilities are available here now. Um, we, we have another constraint in Ireland uh, and indeed everywhere with heart transplantation. Uh, from um, explant of the donated organ to functioning in the transplanted patient, we only really have a safe four-hour gap and our donations have geographically come from all over the country. Uh, and sometimes, um, even with the best will in the world and the cooperation of the uh, Air Corps uh, and the cooperation of everybody, it, sometimes it's a tight-run thing when you have a donation coming from an outlying part of the country uh, to get it in and functioning. Um, all that being said, I mean, clearly, every donation that we have is valuable. And it is really a very frustrating and a sad thing to find that you get a donation and that we can't use it, possibly because we don't have somebody of the requisite blood group um, and the requisite size on our waiting list, because size is another figure. You can't put a very small heart into a very big person. Um, and occasionally, more tragically still, because we simply did not have the facility to do it. Um, there was a period there when the intensive care was being remodelled and restructured, when we had to turn down some donations. But the other point I'd like to make about they're never wasted. If we can't use them, the transplant coordinators in Beaumont um, will invariably offer them to one of the United Kingdom transplant units and it will help somebody in Britain or Scotland or Wales to get a heart or a lung or whatever. So in giving uh, donations like this, uh, the, the family in, the, in their grief can be sure that somebody is going to be helped. It mightn't be done in Ireland, but it'll certainly be done somewhere. The waiting for the donor's heart is probably the most traumatic time of all, especially for those who, like myself, are urgently in need of the new heart. After several attacks during the months of waiting, I woke every morning and played a game of Russian roulette, wondering which would come first, the fatal heart attack or the new heart. And when the call for surgery finally comes, prayed for, wished for, earnestly desired, expected those has been, its arbitrariness takes one by surprise. When my call came, I was sitting down to write, and my initial reaction was to say, look, I'm very busy, can't we leave it for a while? But of course I did not. I rushed to the hospital full of thanks and apprehension. For others... I was told maybe three months before I was given my bleeper that I would need the heart and I was told to actually think about it and I was given my bleeper and I had the shortest wait I think of all transplant patients I had two weeks and three days and I was called for my new heart and the shock of actually being called I didn't know whether I was happy, sad whether it was the best thing that was going to happen to me or whatever but it was most certainly the best thing that ever happened to me, but the shock. Sitting in a bed in the regional hospital in Cork when the bleeper actually went off and it was just luck to God I wasn't passing the River Lee because I'd have probably jumped in with the shock. But fortunately they were very, very good to me in the regional and they organised ambulance, etc., which brought me to Dublin in less than two hours. I had a police escort from the regional hospital in Cork to the Mater in Dublin. 
somebody said I should have felt like Mary Robinson, but um, unfortunately I didn't. I think I was in rather a state of shock and horror. And as somebody said to me, they never saw me so quiet in all their lives. I could hardly talk. And then when I arrived, actually, and it was a very, very fast journey, and my one thing was looking out the window, going through these little towns on the way, and people blessing themselves, and I could just picture myself outside the ambulance on the roadway, you know, and an ambulance is passing you with police escort, and you automatically bless yourself and pray for whoever is in the ambulance. And it was frightening to see that, knowing that they were blessing themselves for me, and me alone, you know, which was absolutely something else. And then I was saying, at least, I'm in people's prayers, or, you know, which meant a lot to me as well on the way up. And I arrived at the matter, and then I decided, no, I don't think I can go through with this transplant at all. But the motorcycle guard were there, and they said, right, you go in and you tell them you want to go home to Cork, and we'll bring you back straight away. And, of course, then I, as soon as I went in, Everything was put in place and before I knew it, I was on my way to theatre. The muscles of the heart were, were gone completely and they were no longer able to operate the pump. They were not able to pump the blood through the system. And as a result, he suggested two things. Rest, plenty of rest, 20, 22 hours a day in bed or Alternatively, if that didn't work, I was a very good subject, in his words, I was a very good subject for heart transplantation. And I clearly remember the response I gave him. I said, you can put that so-and-so idea as far out of your mind as it will go and kindly leave it there. And at this stage, I was barely able to walk and very, very little more than just about able to talk. I was, really, I was really on my last legs to such an extent that the day I was called over to the Martyr Hospital in, in hope of uh, the operation being performed, I was so relieved to get the call that maybe, maybe this might be the solution to my problem, that the nerves aspect of it didn't enter into my mind at all. In the morning then, the cardiologist came in and uh, he sent me for uh, an angiogram. And uh, when he got the results, he said that uh, I would have to go to the Matter Hospital. He did not tell me that I was going for a transplant, but when I found that I was going to the Matter Hospital, there was nothing else, you know, that I could actually have because... Uh, my own cardiologist had told me years before that an, or- an operation wouldn't do me any good. So they brought me over, I think it was on a Saturday evening, and the next day Mr Nelligan called in and had a look at the chart, and he said he'd see what they could do for me. And I had some x-rays and things, and then I went back to James's on the Monday, and uh, a few days later I went home. So then... Uh, 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 began the waiting, if you like. Um, This was, as I said, in November, and um, I really wasn't very well at all. And um, I used to get up in the morning for a dose. I didn't go out very much because it was cold, and my breathing was absolutely dreadful. I hadn't breath in my body. 
and every day you wake up you think to yourself well will it be today that you'd get the call to go but anyhow very briefly in the long run it came very quickly it, i had got through christmas and I, although i believe my face was literally blue but i hadn't black and nearly black and blue i personally didn't see it strange as it may seem and uh, I have a photograph taken on Christmas Day that year, and I can see it now. But at the time, I couldn't see that. As I said, I was very, very blue. Uh, the phone rang. I said, that's probably Mary. So I went home to my own house. And sure enough, <laughs> and I will never forget what she said to me. She said, we have to go to the matter, she says. They have something for you. It was the most peculiar way I thought of putting it. I had just prepared... A pot of noodles on the day I got my call and uh, we were told to come immediately to the Mater Hospital. Uh, I lived in North Dublin and my wife drove me in and uh, I remember arriving at the Mater and I was actually worried. There was a traffic warden there and we were parking on double yellow lines and I was actually worried that I'd get a parking ticket. I mean, it's so ridiculous when you think of it and... We went into the hospital and I was sitting there and I met a f- person who was a, still a very good friend of mine who had had a heart transplant some years before me, who happened to be in. But uh, I was sitting there with my wife and I was shaved, and which I think was one of the worst things. I, I always wondered afterwards how women ever have their legs shaved, but it was the worst of part of the whole operation for me. And... I remember saying to my wife, you know, you know, I, I really know that if you could, you'd change places with me. And she just looked back and she said, you must be joking. But so, well, I called down to the theatre and I had been warned on several occasions that this could be a false alarm, that anything could happen to the organ that had been donated. And uh, I, when I went down, I never really expected that I was going for the operation. I was lying on the bed and they were t- on the operation table and they were pushing things here and there and they kept saying to me now this may not be the, the big business so the next time I knew I woke up and it was all over and my first inclination was to say to Mr Woods that uh, I had changed my mind I don't want <laughs> They are the ones whose traumatic waiting and apprehension has been superseded by the joy of successful surgery and the miraculous prospect of a new life. For others, the trauma has just begun. They must wait with hope and with patience, for no one can legislate for such things. Nine years ago, uh, I suffered a severe heart attack, which resulted in uh, bypass surgery. Now, after the surgery, I thought all my troubles were over and I went back to work. Uh, I spent several years working in England and abroad and never thought any more about my heart problem, thinking all my troubles were at an end. Uh, Then about seven months ago, while I was working abroad, I suffered a slight attack and I flew home immediately to Dublin and spent six or seven weeks in St Vincent's Hospital. Uh, While I was there, I was examined and diagnosed as requiring further surgery. Uh, At this stage, the options, it seems, were very few. One was uh, medication, which would probably leave me a semi-invalid for the rest of my days and unable to work. 
And the alternative, which really brought it home to me, was um, a full heart transplant. Now, the, the shock of this at the time took a few days to sink in until I realised at 42 years of age, the options were very, very were twofold and I didn't fancy the medication side of it, so I decided I had to go for, go for broke. Um, I went on the panel for a transplant at uh, the end of August, which uh, necessitated getting a bleeper, which I carry with me at all times, 24 hours a day, always hoping that at some stage this bleeper is going to go off. But it's a bit frustrating in one sense, because while you're hoping for a donor, you're also not wishing on any other poor soul to uh, to go and be a benefactor for you. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. But um, it, it is frustrating. Um, I've always been very active in my work. When I was abroad, I worked 70, 80 hours a week. Now you wake up in the morning and there's very little to look forward to other than shopping or the washing machine. Um, I don't know how much longer it will take. Um, that's in God's hands. Um, but hopefully not too long because I, my condition is deteriorating slowly. Um, and it can be frustrating when you're meeting friends uh, and family down uh, when you're actually out and they're all telling you how well you look. Uh, I'm still attending uh, St Vincent's Hospital every four to five weeks for a regular checkup uh, where my condition is being monitored. Um, I've, I suppose, over the last six to seven months, I've got to know quite a few of the staff, particularly in the coronary care in St. Vincent's, and they've been fantastic, uh, both in giving you moral support as well as medical support. I recall the evening I was told that I would have to have a transplant. I was tired going in and out of hospital for various checkups, wondering what was wrong. And it was a great relief to be told that something could be done for my complaint. I was told that I would need a transplant and it was an awful shock. But as I told my friends and my family that something positive could be done, we were all delighted. I, I was uh, overweight quite a bit. And it was in my efforts to get weight down as soon as possible, but keep strong at the same time. I am working on this slowly, but getting the results. And I hope to get my weight down to a situation whereby it, a suitable heart will be available for me. I wake up each morning and the first thing I look at is my bleeper to check it and make sure it's working and to wonder if today I will get my call. I get frustrated some days not being able to do what I would like to do, feeling tired, groggy, bad form, a nuisance in the house. But to get over this problem, I go for a walk and I come back a new man. That is, of course, on the flat. Well, it's a difficult place to be, to be the one who's closest to the person who's waiting for a transplant. In my case, it, it took me quite a while to accept that this was what was happening in our house. I really thought it was in somebody else's house, and that uh, 
things like this don't happen to you, they happen to other people. But of course now I know it's happening to us and I've had quite a while to get used to it and yet one never really, really grows used to it. Um, I'm very, we're very fortunate we have one son still living at home with us and he has made a great difference to the waiting in that he is the one probably who keeps the house normal most of the time. He seems to be able to rise up over all the maybe low spirits that take place from day to day in the house. Um, Sometimes it seems as though it's happening to me and not to Pat, but of course then the the terrible realisation is that it's twice as bad for him as it is for me. Um, And I don't know really... um, how I would cope with it if I were him, but I don't think I would cope as well as he does. I think I would be lower most days, whereas he's only low some of the time. Most of the days he seems to be able to keep up and keep his spirits up, and that keeps all our spirits up. One of the things that has helped most of all probably has been through being through being now a constant visitor to the Matter Hospital and the wonderful team of people who are working there to have met many, many people who have already had this surgery and have had a new life handed to them uh, through this surgery. And this is the thing that really keeps me going and keeps us both going because we would hope that this is what is going to come for us as well. The pre-operative and post-operative counselling and care are greatly appreciated. Awaiting a suitable donor was a period of extreme anxiety for my husband. In his case, this became more stressful with the passing months due to his worsening condition. The wonderful support and encouragement of the staff of St Vincent's Cardiac Unit and the caring attitude of our friends was of tremendous help to all of the family, enabling us to cope better. When finally we did receive news of a suitable donor, rather than panic, we felt a great sense of relief. In the post-operative period, the efficiency and expertise of the staff of the transplant unit at the Mater Hospital was very reassuring. Despite that, I did feel rather apprehensive at the prospect of my husband's homecoming, realising the great responsibility that entailed. Michelle Kavanagh, transplant nurse at the Mater Hospital Dublin, in her kind and caring attitude, epitomises the spirit of helpfulness that pervades the whole cardiac unit. I usually meet the patients who are awaiting heart transplants, either at the stage where they're having their tests done um, to determine their suitability, or when they have actually been placed on the waiting list. Uh, when I meet them, I generally find the, the, the most common feeling among patients who have been told that they need a transplant is anxiety largely based on the fact that they really don't know what's ahead so the information I can give them about what to expect is frequently a great help to them. The waiting period can be an extremely difficult time for somebody waiting for a major life-saving operation such as a heart transplant It's a period when families will contact me from time to time, wondering if I can give them any idea 
of how soon the transplant may happen. But obviously, it's not something that we can determine at all. When a suitable organ becomes available, then the recipient will hopefully have his or her surgery at that time. So obviously, the more donors we have and the more funds we have, then the shorter the waiting period can be for people in this dreadful position where they're waiting for a life-saving operation. Mr. Morris Nelligan acknowledges the fine job done by the Department of Health. But there's a certain amount of self-help in this too. And this is why we've set up the Cardiac Surgical Foundation uh, to raise funds to help to develop and equip this third operating theatre, which helpfully, hopefully rather, uh, will uh, enable us to do both more transplantation and more ordinary cardiac surgery. And this will be launched at, um, on the 14th on St. Valentine's Day. And the foundation is the parent body of what's going to be called the Cardiac Surgical Association. And we're going to offer membership in this to everybody who's had open heart surgery in the country, man, woman and child. And it'll be a two-way thing that we hope that these people will help us to help the people uh, who as now can't receive um, adequate treatment quickly enough and that it will also help us to ensure that when they get it, that it will be the absolute best there is and state-of-the-art. And the other uh, element of this is that we will endeavour to keep all the patients who've had their surgery uh, appraised of what is new and what is changing, uh, what they should be doing and what they should be looking for. And for a relatively small amount of money, I think it's going to be about £20 a year to enrol in the, in the association, uh, we would hope to provide information, counselling, advice on lifestyles, physiotherapy, etc. And in return, we would uh, expect them or ask them or hope that they would help us uh, to raise money to help the unit and to help the people we haven't got to yet. Uh, that's what we're about, Bill, and... Um, that's where we see the future lying. We can't always lie back and, and depend on the state to do it. Um, we don't want to waste our lives waiting like that. We want to get on and positively do it ourselves, and we're asking our people to join us and help us. Dr Brian Moore emphasises the need for donors. Those of us who are lucky enough to be healthy and never have to think about our own hearts should consider the problems, the dilemmas, the anxieties, the stresses of those on the waiting list for all forms of major surgery, particularly heart surgery, and particularly individuals who uh, are awaiting heart transplantation, and ask ourselves, what can we do about it? Well, the simplest thing that an ordinary member of the public can do is to get a donor card and carry it with him. The scripture says that you know neither the day nor the hour, some of us are going to be taken sooner than we think, and if we are carrying on us a card which authorises the use of our organs for whoever may benefit of them, if any tragedy does befall us, then I believe that we are doing uh, ultimately a very great service, not only to the individual who receives the uh, organs and which gives them a new lease of life, but to, our, to the state and our final duty as citizens. Matt Farrell is chairman of Heartbeats, the association of those who have had heart transplant. In May of 1994, 
with the assistance of Cron, we booked an area in Oak Glen. Oak Glen is in Glen Cree and it's an area which is designated for Irish oak trees. What we have done is, in honour of our donors and in, in gratitude to them for the enormous benefits they've given us, we have decided to erect a, an Irish oak tree for each donor. At the moment, we reached 100 donors in 1994, and we have 660 trees now in the forest. Um, we have called the area Undira Buyakis, which means the oak wood of thanks. This is not a memorial centre, this is a happy area. It's an area of friendship and of gratitude. During my wait for transplantation, I practiced a necessary pragmatism, thinking of my new heart as a spare part, a pump, a component of a cardiac engineering process. But after surgery, it was very different. I felt as if I had been nudged by the ineffable. This was no spare part. This was a living presence. This was someone else's heart beating rhythmically inside me, giving life where life had almost ebbed away. This was what Emily Dickinson meant when she wrote, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the song without the words and never stops at all. In such extremities as heart transplant, we need the humility to abandon ourselves to a power greater than ourselves, a power that holds us all in the hollow of its benign hand, disposing of our various destinies. Call it what you will, according to your belief or unbelief. The gods, the fates, Jesus, Buddha, nada. For, in addition to the donor and the expert caring medical team, we need a certain element of miracle, with a small m. And only with the humility of abandonment can the miracle begin. Mm-hmm. 